I have to start with some apologies. Three apologies. One, when I left the house this morning, the roads were not great. And it was really, really cold. And I thought, there's not going to be really anybody there. We only need two boxes of donuts. We don't need four, just two. So I bought two, and they're all gone. And all these children, all these precious gifts from God came, and there's no donuts for them. Growing up's hard enough, <laughs> right? And I have unfairly contributed to that, and I'm very sorry. And sorry to the parents who had to talk them through that. I apologize. Um, also, I have to apologize, because last week I blew the little note card thing. Pastor Brian's bringing me this week's, and I blew it last week. I didn't even say it. It was like right on the T, too. It was so perfect that I would have, I, I forgot. So let me just look at this one. That one's much harder than last week's, and I deserve it. Um, so third apology, I forgot to mention last week that we had some notes to kind of supplement um, and so that was a little bit random on your way out. We actually do have new notes this week for this week uh, when we're going through Genesis 9 together. So if you are at all interested, they are kind of just outside the door, and you can grab them on your way out, or you could get them on your way in, or you could get them now, whatever, uh, if it's helpful to you. Um, they're just sort of footnoted, annotated trip through Genesis chapter 9. Because um, last week we took a kind of a whirlwind tour from Genesis 3 up through Genesis 8. Uh, and we did that because we're starting a new sermon series here with the first Sunday together of the year. We started a uh, sermon series called Children's Stories All Grown Up. And the, uh, the sense is that we're choosing stories that you are well familiar with when you're little, uh, but become more and more challenging as your eyes are lifted to the horizons of the realities of the passage uh, as you grow up. Um, so we made note of this fact that as you grow, the world does turn to be more and more complex. There are things that challenge our understanding of the way things are and break our hearts because they're not the way things ought to be. And so we, we started the, the sermon series last week saying, listen, can we all agree that when we look at this world with clear eyes, we realize quickly, we need justice. And when we look in the mirror with clear eyes, we realize we need mercy. And so we wonder for just a second, can the God of the Bible pull it off? Can he do it? Now we know the scriptures say he can do it, literally that phrase. He is able and he will do it even. He will be fully just and fully merciful. And it's with that question in mind that we took a sort of a tour through the flood. And when we look at the flood, at first glance we think, how can this have any relationship to justice? And, and where, where in the pages here is mercy? But as we started to dig in more and more deeply, we realized that this flood account is not your average flood account. It's not like the flood accounts, for instance, that you find throughout Mesopotamia, throughout the ancient Near East, where there are actually a common thread of stories about a flood. And in those cases, it's sent by capricious, jealous, short-sighted gods. 
lowercase g, who are angry and annoyed that human beings are smelly and noisy. They're actually so short-sighted that they've forgotten that they need the human beings to serve them and feed them. In fact, when you get to the end of their flood accounts and someone gives a sacrifice, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, for instance, it says that the gods swarmed the sacrifice like flies because they were so hungry because they had totally forgotten that they need the human beings to feed them and then they killed them all. It's very different when we see Noah's sacrifice, a burnt offering, a going up offering that says he gave everything, didn't reserve any of it for his own feast. And what it says in Genesis chapter eight is that God smelled the pleasant aroma he didn't need it, but he recognized it. It's very different. It's very different. This God who didn't send the flood, but handed human beings over to the chaos that they had chosen by removing his hand of sustaining hand on creation, but in his mercy provided a, a refuge for Noah and his family because Noah was a righteous one, one in right relationships, right relationships with God, right relationships with others, and right relationship with himself. And so God provides this refuge called an ark. And this word ark is very, very specific. It's not the same word that's used for the ark of the covenant, which is really a word that just kind of means cabinet, a real special cabinet to be sure but a cabinet. This word ark is an Egyptian word by which they would sort of uh, move the idols of the Egyptian gods and goddesses from one temple to another down the Nile River, thinking that these idols were precious as they represented the gods. And so here God is saying, no, no, no. Those idols are deaf and dumb. There are ones I've made in my image to be sure but they're not made of stone, nor are they made of wood. They are flesh and blood, and I breathed my spirit into them, and they're worth saving. They are precious to me. And so it's his mercy that builds an ark, a safe refuge, which actually points forward to the tabernacle and actually points forward to the temple. And we realize that it's in here with God that we're safe from the chaos of the world around us. In fact, as they're safe in this ark, this ark that doesn't even have a rudder or a keel, that God is guiding to safety, he makes his spirit to blow across the waters, recalling Genesis chapter one. He's going to remake the world. He's going to, with a great heart of hospitality, make it safe again, a place that can be cultivated. And the ark comes to rest on Mount Ararat and Noah and his family are welcomed into a covenant. They're made safe. In fact, it's on the first day of the first month that the weather and the world has quieted down enough that Noah can take the top off and enjoy that first day of spring, so to speak. And the first day of the first month is specifically chosen to remind us of the Passover, actually, because we remember that this passage actually wasn't written for Noah. He lived it. It was written for us to know what God is like. God, who is fully just and fully merciful and not at all like these other gods and these other stories. I think perhaps you can imagine God inspiring his people to write these stories because he wanted to distinguish himself 
these people who thought, yeah, there was this flood, the gods must hate us. And God says, no, I'm not like that. Not at all like that. And so his character is, in fact, on display as one who's merciful, even in the pages of the story of the flood. But here we are now, chapter 9. In, in the post-flood world, the, the post-diluvian world, as it were. And we find out that this world is actually still just as complex and challenging as the one before the flood. Maybe we have high hopes still. Perhaps we're still thinking of, of the promises or the prophecies made about Noah when he was born to his father Lamech. And Lamech said, my son's name will be rest, which is what the word Noah means. And he will provide us rest from this challenging relationship that we have with the earth. And so we think maybe that's right. Maybe now that it's just Noah and his family, we can start again. Maybe there's a way back into Eden. Maybe the doors will be flung wide and the two angels that were left there protecting the way back to Eden will step aside and humanity can go back to where God had always wanted them to be. Maybe, maybe. And, and chapter nine actually starts with this hope in mind. Take a look at verses one and, and, and following. What we find out right away is that the blessing persists. Look here. Then God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. Certainly your memory bells are ringing. Certainly you're reminded of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 28, when humanity was blessed and told to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the garden, to expand the borders of the garden, to press it ever outwards, and to make a safe place. Here the blessing persists. They're still called, even after all of this, still called to be fruitful and increase in number, to fill the earth. Now, of course, the problem before the flood is that they had filled it with violence. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. Having been called to fill the earth with God's character, having been called to, to fill the earth with reminders of what is all true and good and noble, they had instead filled the earth with violence. They had torn each other apart. They had broken relationship after broken relationship. They had taken what they thought was good for themselves. They had completely denied God's responsibility, God's singular responsibility to decide what is right and what is wrong. And they had overreached. And they had begun to tear each other apart. But here we see the blessing persists. Actually, skip down to verse 6 and you see it even here. It says this, whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. Remember the ark. Remember what was worth saving. The ones that bear the image of God. And it hasn't been stamped out. It hasn't been erased. It persists even after all this. It cannot be lost to be made in the image of God. This phrase, in a direct sense, is actually only found in those two places. Genesis chapter one, and here, Genesis chapter nine. It's sort of echoed in other places about being in the likeness of God or being remade in the likeness of God. But here, in a direct sense, we're, we're told, we can, we can breathe, we're still made in the image of God. 
despite all appearances. So the blessing persists. The privilege of what it means to be human persists. Even though we had fumbled the ball right before the goal line, it persists. But of course, there's a little bit, there's a little bit of a hint that things are maybe not all right. Maybe the way back into Eden hasn't necessarily been flung as wide open as we would like. If you're, if you're tracking the notes, just right over that sort of bluey, highlighted bluey area there, it says this, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. Is the snake still in the garden? Is he still whispering in people's ears? Is sin still crouching at our door? That same sin that God had told Cain, you must master. He used the, word, the Hebrew word Tim shell. You have to come to master. Is that still crouching at our door? Well, maybe it is. But God will not be deterred because if you look in verses 9 and following, you see just how expansive this persistent blessing is. That God would be on about this, that all should be saved. Here's what it says. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants. Now, those of us who travel with the story when we were little, we might know some of Noah's descendants a little sideways, right? Things are about to get weird, to be honest, right? It's about to get quite strange, and they are the descendants of Noah. Ham, to name names, right? To name names. He's a descendant of Noah, and God's calling even Ham into the blessing, into the covenant, a relationship that is steadfast, that will not break. In fact, here's what it says next. And with every living creature. See how far flung God's borders are. All throughout scripture, he's caring for these animals. The Psalms remind us that as the animals get to eat, it's because God provides. When, when Nineveh is in peril, God's actually quite concerned about the cows. That's actually where Eric will head next week and the week following. We'll be talking about Nineveh and Jonah and God says, Why? I care about those cows. You don't? This is, this is a far-flung blessing. It's beautiful. And it does actually start to even echo Lamech's words about his own son. Lamech said, it's my son, rest, that will give us rest from this painful curse with the ground. And what happens next is God says, I'll give you a sign of my covenant. I'll tell you about my persistent blessing. Here's a promise. I'm going to hang my bow in the sky. Now, this word bow is actually quite literally the word for a weapon. It, it doesn't necessarily, we don't have to think God invented the rainbow at this moment. He just says, no, this is the sign. This is what you should think of when you see it. Much like my wife gave me a ring but didn't invent a ring. It's a sign that I remember and I carry with me. 
so that when I see the colors stretched against the gathering dark, I remember that it's God that carries us through the storm. Whatever storm has just passed or whatever storm is on the horizon, whatever storm clouds the rainbow is stretched out against, it's God that carries me through. This is beautiful and persistent. He's hung his bow up in the sky and he says, I promise you, this is everlasting. That's what it says actually in verse 16. It is an everlasting covenant. These ones are worth making a covenant with. These ones are worth bringing through the storm. These ones are worth propping up even against their own frailty. These ones are worth coming after and making a way for. These ones are worth bringing through the storm and he'll do it everlasting. Yes, we have to keep remembering how distinct this image of God is from what we see in all the rest of the ancient Near Eastern literature. Can you trust Marduk? Can you trust Zeus? Is anything they ever say everlasting? Certainly not. Certainly not. But with God it is. And so Noah steps into the world remade as a man who is called to join in with God in remaking this world. In cultivating, in making it safe, he steps out of the ark. He's given his sacrifice and then he sets about the work. He sets about the work. What does it say? In verse 20, he says, Noah planted a vineyard. Very subtle, but purposeful recollection of what it was supposed to be like in the Garden of Eden where they were supposed to cultivate, where they were supposed to subdue the ground and make it produce here we have the ark, the safe place in all of the tumult, resting on the top of a mountain, and a garden is being planted. We are for sure supposed to think about Genesis 1 and 2. For sure. Because actually the Garden of Eden is a high place. I know we don't necessarily think of that. Like our flannel graphs didn't give us the mountain vibe right? The, the flannel graphs kind of gave us like scantily clad human beings with nice hair and flat and some trees and maybe an apple around, right? But here we have to remember the picture that was actually being painted for us by this culture that's very different from ours. It's a cross-cultural experience to read it. And it's very cross-cultural because they are what's called a high-context culture and we're what's called a low-context culture. What that means is they sort of always assume you know what they're talking about, right? You have maybe friends like that and they've been thinking stuff in their head and then all of a sudden they start talking and you just go, I just wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't in your head, I wasn't. I don't know what you're, I don't know what you're saying. Where, 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 where are we talking about, right? That's kind of how they communicate with one another. They make a subtle reference using a vocabulary word. They kind of slide in in the back door an allusion to a story that everyone knows. But we're a low-text con uh, culture, context culture. So what we do is we spell it out, right? But here, what's not being spelled out necessarily but is being communicated in the Garden of Eden, that it's a mountain. The rivers are flowing down from it and watering the world. Go back and read it you'll notice that the rivers, where do rivers flow from? From the mountains. So here we are in a place, a potential garden of Eden. 
But Noah takes the fruit. Here he makes wine. I don't think we should jump to any conclusions about this. This is not commentary on the rightness or wrongness of what he does with the fruit. But notice what happens. He does take from the, the, the plant, he turns it into wine, and then his nakedness is discovered. Genesis 3. They take from the tree and they realize they're naked, but in this case, it's not actually Noah that realizes he's naked. Perhaps he's too far gone, to be honest. It's hum. And we see that Noah is uncoveredness, is uncovered, and that Ham saw his father's nakedness. I cannot, in present company, tell you exactly what this means. It is worse than you are imagining. Can I just tell you to go to Leviticus chapter 18 and read it in the NAS version, where they translate things a bit more directly, and you'll see the phrase repeated over and over again, uncovering their nakedness. I'll just tell you that Noah is very vulnerable to what Ham did to him. It's bad. Ham asserts his authority over his father, Noah, in some way. Some terrible, terrible way. Violence persisted. Remember back to Genesis chapter 6. At the beginning, we found out that there were these sons of Elohim that saw what they wanted and took it and thought of it as good. And then Yahweh said, it's all bad all the time. They had overreached. They had decided that they could define what was right and what was wrong for themselves. They did what was right in their own eyes, as the phrase reverberates throughout Scripture. And everything fell apart because of it. And Ham does the same. He sees and he takes The blessing persisted. Can we say, so did the curse? Can we say, so did the brokenness? Can we say that the complexity of what it means to be human persisted? Can we say that? On the one hand, the privilege of being made in the image of God. And on the other hand, all disordered in our loves and our desires and all twisted up inside, like Martin Luther says, in curvatus, we are turned in on ourselves, placing ourselves above our neighbor, defining right and wrong for ourselves instead of deferring to God. That persisted. In fact, it persists to the degree that Noah finally speaks for the first time. We've known his name since the end of chapter 5. Here we are, almost done with chapter 9, and he finally says a word. First word he says, cursed be Canaan. I want to remind you, these are the very people that God had actually blessed a few verses ago. Noah, has, he's suffered. I understand what he's going through, but... What we can see is there's things out of alignment with God's purposes, things out of alignment with God's plan. He's blessing and there's still people cursing each other. It's broken. It's broken. And so he says, cursed be Canaan. Canaan wasn't, Canaan wasn't there. It was Ham. Why is Canaan cursed? 
This is unjust. Is Canaan responsible for the sin of his father? Certainly, we know that pain and perspectives and postures are passed on from generation to generation. We've seen the seed of the serpent blooming in the world if we read Genesis 3 through 6. Is that locked in? Does it have to be that way? Is Canaan at the mercy of this curse? Now, first of all, God is under no obligation to honor Noah's curse. That's Noah doing what's right in his own eyes. He does not have control over that. But second of all, there are all kinds of signs throughout Scripture that it's not locked in stone. That while pain and postures and perspectives are passed down from generation to generation, there is still God making things new. Canaan, the Canaanites. Have you ever read closely what's said about the Canaanites? Well, you do have the Leviticus 18 side of it, which is directly attributed to the actions of the Canaanites, and you can trace that back to this moment, back to Ham. But there's other names, surprising names, moments where we realize that God is working in and through the Canaanites. He wants to bless everyone. He's not willing that any should perish. Names like Melchizedek pop up. Somehow this Canaanite is a high priest of the God Most High, and he is teaching Abraham about how to worship. Names like Ruth reverberate in the genealogies of Scripture, where she's a Canaanite and then is brought into the fold. It's Jael that has victory in a very startling story. And she is told, we're told, in that very moment when she has victory with the tent peg, you can look it up, uh, that she's a Canaanite. And she's the one that had victory. Rahab, who welcomed the spies, is in the genealogy of Jesus. God is working in and through even the Canaanites. He's not willing that any should perish. Can we see that our God is all the way just and he's all the way merciful, rescuing us even from generational pain, rescuing us, working to bring us into the fold. Let me tell you about this fold. Noah goes on and he talks about two of his other sons. He says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Shem. Interestingly, he doesn't actually directly bless Shem. He says, praise be to God. He blesses God. But we do find that in this moment, that it's through Shem that the line will carry on. Shem, and then on down, and a guy named Abram, and he'll have many sons, and it'll keep going. God's at work. He's at work. But then he talks about Japheth. He says, may God extend Japheth's territory. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem. This phrase, live in the tents, is used in two ways. On the one hand, in the hands of men, this phrase in scripture, like Psalm 78 means, taking someone's tents for your own, pillaging, pillaging, 
driving them out and making those tents your own. In the, on the one hand, this phrase, dwelling in the tents, is in reference to the, the warring brothers and sisters. Because if we're thinking through these genealogies, we realize we're all just brothers and sisters and just some of us have been away from home far too long. There's one who will come later who says, love even your enemies. Welcome even the prodigal son home. That's your brother. These are your sisters. But in the hands of man, the people who do what's right in their own eyes, this phrase means driving out the other and taking for yourself. But there's another way the phrase is used. It means to be welcomed in, to be made safe. And we wonder, if in the hands of man, this is a problem, this phrase, in whose hands can it be turned on its head? Noah couldn't open the way back to Eden for us, even given chances. Who can open the way back to Eden? Who can call our lost brothers and sisters home? I think you know. It's Jesus. It's Jesus. And the gospel authors want us to know it. Where does Jesus make his ultimate sacrifice? On the high place. What is he offered when stretched out against the gathering dark? Wine. What have they done to him but strip him naked? And here this one, who seems to be suffering a defeat at the seed of the serpent, is actually winning us a great victory. Think Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. It's Jesus who's opening a way back to Eden for us. It's Jesus who's providing rest for us, that which Jonah could not do and Abram could not do and David could not do and all those following. It's Jesus who turns this phrase on its head, a phrase that is sometimes used about pillaging and taking for oneself and turns it into a, a, a set of gates flung wide open. Read Isaiah 11 and hear about the nation streaming to Zion as he's making them safe. In fact, Matthew wants to, us to know that it was pitch black when Jesus died. Darkness has returned to the face of the earth. It's because God's on the move. It's, he, he's remaking the world again. It's Paul that will echo this and say, you are remade in his image. You are a new creature you are brought back into the fold, into the moment of creation, remade in his image as one who is safe in Eden. Matthew tells us it's pitch black, just like it was before creation and before God began to form it, bring light and fullness and shape to it. In fact, John wants us to know that there were two angels at the grave. You ever notice that? The other gospel accounts mention the angels, John says there's two of them. Where else have there been two angels? There's two angels just outside of Eden, friends. Two angels guarding the way back to Eden. There's two angels on the Ark of the Covenant 
sort of protecting and, and, and pointing to the image of God in the ark, the presence of God in the ark. And now there's two angels and the stone is rolled away. The way back to Eden has been remade. These two angels call our attention to it. You're looking for the living among the dead. That don't make any sense at all. If you want to find the living, look among the living and the one who's made us alive. It's Jesus. And it's actually way more beautiful than even just this. Remember it said this, may God extend Japheth's territory. We might ask ourselves, what territory did God extend Japheth's family into? And you don't have to wait very long. You could just read Genesis chapter 10. What's called the table of nations is a genealogy. And if we're paying close attention and we've got an atlas in front of us, we can realize where Japheth's family went. It's up into what we would call Turkey, Asia Minor, Anatolia. It, it, it's across into southeastern Europe, what we might call Greece and Macedonia. It, it, it's across the Adriatic and into Italy. In fact, we're told it's all the way west to Tarshish, what we believe to be Spain. Does that order of events sound similar to anything? Familiar? It's the actual missionary journeys of Paul. There are many, many scholars who think that Paul designed his missionary journeys knowing that God was looking to welcome Japheth's family home. So he went after him. Remember, the God whose image we're made in doesn't wait inside the house for us. He goes outside the gates. He comes running. And so when Paul's eyes were opened and the Rolodex of Scripture started filing into place, he thought, I know what my job is. My job is to be the one who delivers the good news. How beautiful the feet of the one who delivers the good news to those on the mountain, to those far flung, our sisters and brothers far off, a long way from home. And so that's what Paul was on about. He tells us as much. When you look at Romans chapter 15, he says, I really want to go to Spain. I, I just really want to go to Spain. To, to Tarshish. Now to preview next week, that's where Jonah goes running to. But Paul, he's going carrying a message. A message. Because he knows that this one Jesus has taught us, like in John 15, 12, that we can have right relationships, that peace has been made. Our relationship with God remade the doors to Eden flung wide open. And because of that, we can be right with ourselves and stop scrambling so much and stop loving things out of order and taking what we think is good for our own selves. And instead, we can let the blessing flow through us like Abraham was called to. And so Jesus says sometimes very simply, love others as I've loved you. I made a way I loved you sacrificially. I gave when other people took. 
what looked like a defeat became a great victory because he fully bore the image of God, teaching us how beautiful that really is. And instead of filling the world with violence because of the work of Jesus and the spirit, the very same spirit that hovered over the waters and sent the wind across the flood and then across the Red Sea and then across the Jericho, that very same spirit now lives in us, Ephesians chapter 2. The very same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead now lives in us. Here's the beauty of it all. Jesus has made us safe, but even more beautiful, he has made us into the safe place. God has always been building an ark, the Garden of Eden, a safe place from the wilderness, the ark, a safe place from the chaos, the church, when it is as it should be, a safe place, a shelter from the storm. We can all point to moments when it wasn't that. We can all point to moments where we gave in to the wrong voice, to the whispering of the, of the serpent, instead of the still small voice of the Lord Most High. But when the church is as it should be, it is a garden of Eden by which people are made safe from the storm and can be remade in God's image. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. You've been good to us. You are all the way just. You are all the way merciful. You have made a way. When your son was stretched out against the gathering dark, you made a way back to Eden for us. And through all the complexities of what it means to be human, God, you have been patient and your blessing persists. You have called us out of ourselves and into your arms and into your mercy. Lord, you make all things right. We praise your name because of it. In your son's name, amen.